Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Oh my, when we have a great text like we had last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, uh, that was the concluding passage, uh, or verse of our passage that we did last week. Uh, that's one of those verses that just stands out like a jewel. Uh, for uh, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty you might become rich. And, of course, that's an outstanding text, isn't it? And I've, I've got a feeling it's probably a, a favorite of uh, many of ours. Um, it's one of the most inspirational in this book, if we can say inspirational. And it's all inspired, don't get me wrong, but one of those that just stands out. And uh, when we think of the Apostle Paul writing Second Corinthians, there are certain texts in Second uh, Corinthians that... Uh, are forever etched in our memory, and of course I think of chapter 4, for uh, instance, where it talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of God, knowledge of the glory of God, and the face of Christ. Those are some of my favorite verses right there, and then of course, do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Those kind of verses. Then you get into chapter 5 and it talks really about the, uh, um, the, the new body that we will have. And uh, right now we're at home in the body. We're absent from the Lord, right? One day we will be at home with the Lord in a new body. So chapter 5 really hands that out and... and uh, Chapter 2 is, a, is another one that stands out. And then we get into verse 10 of Second Corinthians after verse 9. And it's almost like, in a human sense, you're up at, at the peak and you go just like that and it gets into reality. And so often it does that. We were at the heights there. Paul, you, you reached the heights of spirituality in verse 9. And when you came to verse 10, after being so inspirational, you help us remind us that you're human too. <laughs> and you say, what are you getting at here? Well, see, verse 10, in a human sense, is not so inspirational, even though it's inspired just like other verses. It's not so inspirational in the sense that it's not really high doctrine that we have here, um, but it is doctrine that is the word of God. And every word that comes from the mouth of God is inspired and it's very important. But there are ones that are really, really sky high in our minds, and we love to, to hit on those and stay in those for a while. But then there are other verses that are useful, that have a purpose in the will of God, and they have power and meaning too. Uh, this is something the Lord would like for us to receive. It's the Word of God. And wherever you're at in the Word of God, He wants you to pay attention to Him and see what He has for you. This is the beauty of expository preaching. Because 
one like me would pick out his favorite text and just stay in those the rest of his life and just do that. But yet we're commanded to do the whole counsel of God. And it covers some things sometimes that we would not like to spend time in too much. But it's straight from the Lord. And we really need to hear from him on things that really are not our favorite topics. We want to hear other things sometimes, but here's something that we must have, God says. He provides two chapters worth. So I can't escape. I can't get out of it. I do have a pretty big chunk this morning, but it's because it it reads like sometimes in the Old Testament, you can take big chunks because you have a story there. Well, there's a story here. There's a thought process going on with all that we've received coming up to this text. So without apology, I'm going to continue in 2 Corinthians as we happen to be in the middle of chapter 8 and it deals with grace giving. I like those two terms together because giving cannot be done without grace. And of course, grace involves giving, doesn't it? The grace that we have been given is from Christ. Uh... Now, anytime a church is talking about this subject and talking from the pulpit, it brings to mind to the congregation of the notorious shysters and the hucksters who use questionable money-raising techniques to make people feel guilty so that they'll dig deep into their pockets because if they don't, then they'll feel unspiritual. And we all have been probably underneath that in some manner or form, if not in a church building, probably there, but if not in that, probably some TV evangelist trying to bilk people out of their money. It's sad to say there is a lot of truth to that. Of course, you can go back to the the 80s and the Jim Bakers and Robert Tiltons, and you can go on and on about the uh, abuse of their taking money from people and It is sad to say there is truth to what I've just mentioned. Many evangelical leaders will resort to fundraising campaigns, try to force building projects to happen and missions work and and evangelism and other legitimate needs of the church. Those are all important. We, uh, We are to be involved in those. But the appeal often can be from a wrong motive or done in a wrong method. And we've all heard one appeal after another appeal after another appeal. And frankly, sometimes we just get so turned off, we get so tired of it, that you say, I'm not going to give another dime. I'm so sick of these preachers asking for money. Mark Twain, just a little bit of a light thought here said he was so sickened by the long appeal one day that he not only did not give what he planned to give but he took a bill out of the plate and it was, as it was passed down in front of him mark twain said that i don't know if he did that but if you know mark twain you know his i'm not so sure how often he really went to church but with the truth of the abuses it's a lot easier just to avoid those passages you want to avoid them like the plague sometimes because you don't want people think you're trying to abuse them and take their money however this is not a correct thing to do either just to avoid it right 
So that's why I say that's the beauty of this expository preaching. The Lord has got me into a subject that I cannot avoid. It's here. We must deal with it. God has included in his word the matter of giving. And, of course, I use the word money, and it starts, it's one of those things, but it's much, much else than just giving money. But it's dealing with the local church. It's important to to do what the will of God is on, on this matter. Matter of fact, as we read through these texts, I think it's very refreshing to to hear what God says in this text about how we are to be good stewards, just to hear what he says. And not some kind of technique that people try to pull on you, the schemes that men will have, but to listen to the word of God and see what God says about it rather than men. And isn't that refreshing? Oh, this is what God says. That's okay. That's good. And we realize that it's all designed by God. It's his design. It's his way of making things work. And it makes it a vital thing as a part of our growth as we give to the body of Christ. We grow in Christ. The issue doesn't have to be forced. I don't think the Lord that... We don't have to go around forcing people, you know, and twisting their arms to, to give. That, that is not biblical at all. It's not a, a matter of begging people. You know, if it's, if it's not there, it's not there. You know, you, you pray. And, but it, it's something that God uses, and it's really for the benefit of us all. It's not just for those poor people in Africa. It's for the benefit of every one of us, all in the church, Giving advances the kingdom of God. Hear the call of the kingdom? Well, we're part of it. We're to advance that kingdom. Giving glorifies his name. Meets the needs of others. Lays up treasure in heaven for the rest of eternity. So what you're giving right now in this lifetime counts for eternity. That's an amazing thought. So it's a feature of worship also as as we give. Um, it's a feature, feature of worship just as the reading of the word of God is, just as prayer is, just as singing is, just as the Lord's <laughs> Supper is. And we go on and on. All the things that we do in worship as we preach and treat, teach, we realize that this gracious work that God has given us as far as giving in uh, advancing the kingdom is worship. So why don't we stand and uh, we have a rather lengthy text here this morning. And you'll see how it flows though. It starts in verse 10. After we've read just verse 9, which speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were for the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire, it is so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. 
For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by the way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much and did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men, we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in the case of this, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for your instruction. Help us to be able to understand this principle, all these principles that are involved, so that we may glorify you and be obedient to you, so that your kingdom be advanced. Thank you for this gracious work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you, you must say that was a long reading. That may be one of the longest readings we've ever had in one text. But did you see how it flowed? What we'll do is we'll try to explain it. You can say, well, that was so much reading, I have to go back and look at it again. I will tell you, I didn't pull a Mark Dever, who at, uh, I believe it was at uh, Shepherd's Conference, that he did Psalm 119. And as he was reading through, I don't know if it was Ligon Duncan or somebody, I think it was Ligon Duncan, said to himself, 
he's going to read the whole thing. <laughs> it's in Psalm 119. Oh, what is that? That's the longest chapter in the book. In the whole Bible. <laughs> Rather lengthy. <laughs> Great chapter. All about the Word of God. Well, we really didn't take that many verses compared to that. But we're going to cover all those. And you're going to wonder, how are we going to do that? Uh, by the strength of the Lord. Let's <laughs> look at verse 10. I give my opinion in this matter. This is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago? Not only do this, but also desire to do it. Voluntary giving here. Uh, this first principle here is called finishing the commitment. It's one thing to say you're going to do something. It's another to go ahead as you get started and then to finish it. And that's really what this verse 10 and 11 is about. He says, but now finish it. Doing it also so that just as there was this readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. So he has spent much of chapter 8 bringing up this point. And so now he comes to this and he says... Um, I give you opinion. It's not just an opinion. He's been inspired to do this. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about giving opinion, an opinion dealing with marriage and, and such, marriage and divorce. And Paul often says, I give my opinion. You know, and we say, what's an opinion to anybody? It's nothing. The Word of God is, right? But Paul's opinion, he said something that the Lord had not said as far as word for word goes. So he says, now, here's what the Lord said, here's what I say, or here's my opinion on this. It's more than just an opinion, he's inspired. So a lot of people say, well, see, Paul's giving his opinion there, and so it really doesn't matter. He can take it or leave it. Uh, but that's not the case, or the case here. What he's saying is that I'm giving you some friendly advice for your benefit. Okay, uh, this is all voluntary. He starts off, I've not given you a command here. There is no command by Paul to uh, pressure them to give a certain percentage. He's not telling them anything as far as that's concerned. Uh, I'm giving my opinion. I'm suggesting here for your benefit, this is what you really ought to do. And he justifies it, for he says, for this is to your advantage who were the first to begin a year ago. He says, you started this a year ago, and you were really wanting to do this. It was your desire, he said. You desired to do it. They had good intentions. They really meant it. They're going to do it. He says, okay, if you're the first to get this going in, in your area... If you're willing to give to the poor of the saints, and that's really what's happening, the poor who are in Jerusalem, the Christians there, he says, don't be the last in coming through and doing this. Since if you started it first, don't be last to, to, to do it. And so that's what he's doing. He's right. He says, this would be for your benefit. I'm suggesting that he's not commanding. Uh, it's an advantage to give. That's the issue. How much advantage would you like? He's saying. Would you want the Lord to bless you? How much treasure do you want to put aside that's going to be lasting for eternity? That's kind of the thought there. 
finish the, the commandment. You go to, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. This is where this all started. Remember, right the text that we just read there said it was a year ago. We look at 1 Corinthians 16, we get this. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, Jerusalem, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. He says it all should be there for this particular collection, this giving here. And they were to do it weekly. They met when? The first day of the week. That tells us a lot about the church. They met on Sundays. First day of the week. They gave then. Um, that's an idea of at least a, a, on, a, on a kind of a regular basis. Some people may get paid once a month and they pay all once a month, something like that. But it's not hold, withholding. Uh, let's see, I, I put in some like, I don't know, it's about three years ago. And uh, I guess I ought to put some more in, right? Uh, we go to the second one, verse uh, verse 11, verse 12. But now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness of desire, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability, by your ability. For if the readiness is present, is it acceptable according to what a person has? Not according to what he doesn't have. Here's a proportionate thing. By your ability. Whatever, it, it, it means out of what you have. Not, not out of something you don't have. Don't try to give more than you, you can. And in verse 3, we, we did see uh, where um, the Macedonian church was giving not only their ability beyond it. It says, verse 3, I testify that according to their ability... And then he extends on this. And beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They even begged Paul to give more. I'm saying, he was saying, oh, listen, you guys have to take care of yourself. You've given enough. You've given according to your ability. You've even gone beyond their ability, and they kept on begging to give more. Wow. And, and Paul is not saying that they have to be in that sense. What he's saying according to their ability. So for the wealthy, here it is. The willing is measured how do you measure the, the willing to do it? Well, it was by their deeds. That's how you do it for the rich. How about the poor? Well, the willing is accepted for the deed. One who is really willing, but they really can't afford to do it, they'll give a, maybe just a least little bit, but to them, that's a lot. And that's kind of the idea. It's proportionate. Uh, it's entirely different from the tithe here. We see nothing of the tithe here in Second Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, I'm not blasting the tithe. It's an Old Testament um, law. It's dealing with the tax. Uh, if somebody wants to use that word, I'm not going to condemn them. But we really don't have that here. We have grace giving, proportionate giving, having a commitment and meeting that, but proportionate giving is something that the rich have an opportunity to give liberally. They can give more than 10%. They can give 15, 20%. They could give 50% and still be absolutely rich. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody give 50%. We're not even giving percentages, are we? But they could give more. You, know, uh, it's, you, you take... Um, 
a man who does not have, according to the New Testament, he can't give. It's not there. You can't condemn him. Uh, If he can give a little bit, the least little bit, at least that's something. It's a good principle being able to give. There might be a time when he can give more or a lot. But if a man doesn't have, he's not to be condemned. If he can't give, it's not held against him. Uh, The readiness is definitely present there. It's acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. I've always thought about this. If a man has an income, let's say, of $1,000 a week, Okay, another man gets $100 a week. Just using something, just throwing it out there. Now, this man that gives 10%, if you want to use that tithe method, he gives $100. That sounds like quite a bit. But he still has $900 out of that 1000 left. The man who has $100 does a tithe too. And it's only ten dollars compared to the hundred dollars of the man who gave a thousand or had earned a thousand. Now, ten dollars, a hundred dollars. Really, who gave more? Even though they gave the same percentage, who gave more? The man who gave the ten dollars. Because he has only ninety dollars now to work with. You see what I mean? Even percentage, it's an even percentage. There's the idea of proportion. He gives according to what he he has. Uh, actually, that that uh, man who had the $1,000 might have been able to give more than that. Doesn't mean uh, that he's worth, what he gave is worth more than what the first man gave. And so there's the idea of uh, proportionate giving, giving out of um, the ability to give, using wisdom, seeking the Lord. There are a lot of different thoughts on this. Of course, it depends on where one is at, you know, and how much you've got debt and the responsibilities that you still have to, to meet. Verse 13 through 15 is dealing now with equality. This is balancing the, the resources. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by the way of equality. You know, he's he's not saying that, okay, you should give proportionally. So some of you rich people in Corinth, you should give, and then because of that, you should suffer because you give. And the ones who are in Jerusalem who are poor, they can live in ease. He's not really saying that. Uh, He's not saying that he's a Marxist. And a Marxist really wants to redistribute the wealth. You get it? That's socialism. Yeah. So the government, we know, really, they, they don't redistribute it. They, yeah, they redistribute it right in their own pocket. And, of course, we have some of those socialism ideas in our government today, uh, left-wingers, as we are all familiar with, want to redistribute the wealth. Of course, one of those uh, was the aspect of uh, our health care. The Obamacare is a, really is absolute disaster. And, um, it's, of course, I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just, of course, it's, it's going to be a long way. The government really shouldn't even be involving that, no matter what. Of course, if you take it away now, and then the people are going to be screaming because there are some people says, hey, I want you to pay for my abortions. I don't have to pay for mine. 
but the government will, well, the government takes it from the people. So do you want to redistribute your money to people who are going to use it for things that you don't even like? Or it might even be for good things, but they're still all responsible for what they have. They don't even work, want to work. They don't want to work. They just want the government to give them handouts, right? A lot of benefits come out. The government should not be redistributing those things. We've had a lot of socialism that's come in our government since the time that I've been here in life, and it started even before me a little bit. Um, there are some really neat things that come out of it, but really, that's really not what the government is about. And you put it into their hands, and it, it does become weighty, and it becomes a disaster eventually. Um, so we shouldn't even be talking about the government taking care of our health. They don't have a thing to do with it, just the way that I feel, but I don't see it scripturally. <laughs> They're to protect us. Anyway, the, the, I think the reason I got on there was because socialism says, really, it's about equality. We'll take from the rich give extra money and give it out to the poor here so that we're all making the same amount of money. Did you ever see that in any socialistic society? Never. Not at all. Uh, we are members of one body. So we're not suggesting that the rich are to be afflicted, nor am I saying the poor are to feel at ease all the time either. But we are saying that one who has an abundance is to use a supply for somebody's wants so that it can get them at least being able to function. There are spiritual blessings that can be brought to the people who do give. There are responsibilities to help those who brought those spiritual blessings. The spiritual blessings actually came from Jerusalem. It started right in Jerusalem and Judea, didn't it? To Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Word of God was first given in that area to the Jewish people. And now you have the church extending out to the Gentiles. And they should be very grateful for what the Jewish people did because those Jewish people who are now Christians gave them that. And so they should be open. And that's one of the reasons why this is all being brought about anyway. So the Greeks had quite a bit of money there in Corinth and Achaia, those in Jerusalem. Judea have very little. So when those in Greece, take and give that uh, it's not that Jerusalem and Judea are going to have lots and lots of money and Greece now is not going to have in the churches, but it's ministry from one to another, even in material things. In First Timothy chapter 6, we get a good parallel to this about individuals. First Timothy 6.16, who alone possesses immortality. It's verse 17. Sorry to read that one verse. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 
Romans 12, verse 5. So the, the rich Christians, he instructs and says, you have extra money, you have lots of extra money. Help those who are in need, a body of Christ. Romans 12, 5 says, So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So the body works together. When there are needs, we make sure that we try to meet those. And then we think about the illustration that comes right out of the Old Testament. Paul here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 15. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little had no lack. Some of you may have capital letters there indicating this came from uh, an Old Testament text. Or you might be looking at those. Where did those come from? And if you have a Bible that has references, it will probably show it. If you have a study Bible, it will be in the footnote. If you turn to Exodus chapter 16, we'll see what's going on there. And that's exactly what Paul uses, this illustration. God had delivered his people of Israel out of Egypt, brought them over in, uh, into the desert, really, as they prepare themselves to go into the promised land. What are two million people going to do? They only have so much food to get them out of there. And then what? You're in the desert. Well, count on God, right? If he took you out of there, he's going to take care of you. Well, he tested them. Didn't give them any food for a little bit. He knows how far they can go. He knows the human body. And then here's the gracious God that we know. Provides manna. And it means what is this? <laughs> Every morning to just be this miraculous stuff. Something like maybe like a sweet bread or something. That was enough to live on. And it was pretty good. Matter of fact, it must have been really good. It's kind of like angel's food, cake. <laughs> it's the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Forty years. And I'm sure they tried every way that they could possibly do. They sautéed it. And they fried it. Fried it. And I don't know if they had any oil, but <laughs> they baked it. Actually, all they had to do was just eat it. It's what he provided. They would have no lack. In um, verse 17, the sons of Israel did so. They went out and gathered every day. Some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. That means no matter how much he gathered, it always turned out to be that to that one measure of an omer. And he who gathered little had no lack. It measured out to be like what an omer was. And every man gathered as much as he should eat. I mean, they were all satisfied. By the way, don't leave it for the next day, though. <laughs> It'll get up and take off, start walking. That's what the next few verses deal with. I kind of added some spice to that. I'm sorry. Spice to the manna. Ooh. We always try to add to what God has given us. Come short, don't we? Equality there. Isn't there equality? 
If you gathered much, you had the same as the guy who gathered little. Somebody might have been physically weak, maybe not enabled like a stronger person, and could only gathered so much. And that's okay. But it was because it was all he needed. But if you tried to mount up and have too much, I'm going to save some back just in case there's a day where he doesn't provide for us and I'll have it here. Whoa. Is that saying a lot? Yeah. It's saying rely on the Lord every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, God has given us wisdom and what we do and it's a practical thing and of course we're not agrarian in, in our society and we're not out in the wilderness gaining you know getting manna it's nice to have some food in the, in the cupboards in the refrigerator because you can't usually go out into your yard and start just digging up food some of you have gardens and some of you have some pretty good gardens matter of fact some of you really share a lot do the same principle and we have tomatoes you know coming out and all sorts of good things for anybody who wants it right. Grace giving. We meet the needs of others. We get to meet our needs. We get to meet the needs of others. This is all a quality, isn't it? We look to Him to supply our needs. Rich or poor. The rich have some extra. They say, hey, this is for you. Because God gave an abundance to me. And this is an equality. And like we say, this is not socialism, right? It's not that at all. This is not Marxism. But I, I want to supply the needs of fellow believers. That's, that's the, the attitude. Go to the next one. And a great principle is accountability. Whenever there are people gathering up money from people, there's a responsibility that's involved, and it's accountability. So in verse 16 through 23, which is quite, quite the long text there, We've read this text, but he starts off, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. So Paul again mentions Titus. Titus is the one who's gone to the Corinthians. Titus wound up bringing back good news, getting that good news from Paul of what was going on there, and and Paul was elated. Here, Paul sends out a person to help do this, and he's one that all can trust. Paul practiced financial accountability, didn't he? So we could actually say that Apostle Paul was not trying to rip people off. That was the kind of thing that was happening in Corinth. People were saying that Paul was just doing this to gain money. So he's asking for money, and you know what he's going to do. with He's not going to take that back to those people in Jerusalem. The very fact that you have Titus here and he sees this as a, it's a diligent thing. He's diligent in all this. What I find fascinating, verse 17, for he not only accepted our appeal to do this, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you out of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame and the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. So he's involving other, another person. Matter of fact, we'll find out even another person. But you notice in verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts 
the same earnestness in the heart of Titus. Did you catch that? If you're reading like a story and you just read on through, you'll probably skip that. But if you're taking it apart and you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Oh, this is another one of those sovereign God verses. We have to do this one. Look at this. The Lord put it into his heart. At salvation. Like, for instance, Lydia. Lydia's heart was opened. It's all a grace work, and we've already seen that. Um, in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Starts with God, doesn't it? This whole thing starts with God. What Titus just woke up and said one day, I think I'll just start collect get the collection done there in Corinth and get that thing going. No, he didn't. It was put into the heart of him to do this gracious thing. This gracious work. By the way, Zach had the title over there, and it is correctly when we first started off. It was this, uh, actually, what, what is it? Zach, can you take that back to the first page? Principles of grace giving. Now, that's really understandable, and it's just clear, isn't it? Nothing catchy about that, but it's just right up front. And that was my title. And, Zach, you did well, because I gave you no other title. But before I came here, I changed the title. He doesn't have it, but I do. And it's found in verse 19, three words, this gracious work. So now Zach is going to be probably trying to put that title up there now. (laughs) Zach, it was no fault of your own. It was a last minute thing because I like that, this gracious work. But these are principles. That's a subtitle of this gracious work. Here are the principles of this grace giving. Does that make sense? The accountability of Titus. He was moved by God. The earnestness that he has was put there by the Spirit of God. Titus didn't arrive at this out of his own thought, out of his own will. It's always God's will. If we jump into something and start doing it, did we even check with the Lord on that? Did we even check with some other people or circumstances, those things? Sometimes, oh, that's it, boom. God just put it on my heart. And it's something that maybe it sounds good, but it's like, hmm, this doesn't work right now. Just hang on with that. It's a good thought. Let's pray about it. Let's look at this, right? How's this going to work? Well, God put it in my heart. How do I know that? You know, that might be your own thought. God put it in my heart. But here we we see that, yes, this is a God thing. This is exactly what Paul was doing and what what was uh, happening there in Corinth. And so God put the earnestness on the behalf of them by through Titus. And it's for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So he put this diligence in the heart of Titus. Surely, he will do for the spiritual needs of the saints of the church. The saints have as well. I knew it. I knew you'd do that. I wasn't challenging you. I knew you'd wind up doing it. And I didn't even want you to have to do that, but we'll take it. This gracious work. 
so out of that verse, it really makes sense. This gracious, gracious work will meet our spiritual needs, won't it? It'll meet our physical needs. This is a promise to the saints. Just as he takes care of the birds of the air, that was in that prayer this morning, he surely will take care of us. Now there's a brother that's going to go along with Titus. Verse 18, we've sent along with him the brother whose fame and the things of the gospel has spread through all the church. Man, this, this brother must be something. He's famous. I mean, he's known for preaching the gospel. Must be stout in the word of God, right? And he's going to come along. He said, wait a minute. Who's this brother? I bet you it's, it's Luke. But it's Luke. Now, if you read in commentaries notoriously and almost always everybody's going to make a guess they don't know but they're going to put it there anyway there, there's no evidence here it's purely speculative so I will give you a few speculative ideas and then I'll say it doesn't matter it could have been Luke because he was well traveled he uh, was familiar with this he was well known to the people of Macedonia and when, whenever he traveled with the apostle uh, he had even he, we know he stayed in Philippi for a lengthy time but it could have been Tychicus. It could have been Trophimus. It could have been Barnabas. We just don't know. And you say, well, who is it? Who, I really want to know. We've sent along with him the brother. He's the brother. That's all I know. He's a man of in uh, integrity, a man of honesty, maturity. His character is impeccable. That's who Paul would have to go along and do this, somebody they can trust. And now you have Titus and you have the brother, and it deflects any kind of criticisms of misusing the money. You have somebody to check off with that. So he's accomplished in the gospel too. They wanted to be absolutely certain that no reproach fell on that as they did that. And... Um, Verse 22, if you drop down there, we have sent with them, now you have Titus and that brother, our brother. Well, who's this? I just don't know. <laughs> Whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. But now, even more diligent because of his great confidence in you, you Corinthians. Boy, there's the need for caution and care and common sense. They wanted to be absolutely certain that men of no reproach, men or, or servants here, they fell on the church in Christ, right? The credibility of Paul is there and all others involved. Now, the apostle could have taken the money down to Achaia by himself collected it as he went along, but he had Titus do that along with these two guys. He wasn't satisfied with just the one man handling it there as he took it all the way down to Jerusalem. Um, two men went with Titus. They were careful. Uh, somebody called this, I think it was S. Lewis Johnson, he said, this is called Evangelical Brinks, the Brinks truck. Safe in that Brinks truck, right? Security. And so he says at the end of verse 21, For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, 
but also on the side of men. Now we know Paul. He, you know, he doesn't care about men's ideas on who he is. He does it to please the Lord, right? He's not a man pleaser. But in this text, he says, I know I want to please the Lord, but I also want to please men. What's going on there? Well, that they would see, you know, he could say, hey, in the sight of the Lord, I know that what we're doing is fine. But that other people would also see that, and that makes it legitimate too. It is legitimate, but the people then see that this is on the up and up. Paul was concerned what God thought, but at the same time, he was not unconcerned what men thought. He didn't want people to think that they were ripping churches off. Now we go to verse 24 and its expression of love. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Here's an expression of love. When we give, we express our love. You ever heard of love offering? It's not a bad term, is it really? Grace giving, love offering. It's because we love others. And it's shown. Paul had instructed the Corinthians the importance of making the contributions that needed to be made. Take every reasonable precaution. Avoid any appearance here. Now it was time for the Corinthians to give openly as the other churches would see this, as they have made a promise, and people would see how clearly it was, how generous the Corinthian church was. And by doing this, they would show, they would prove of their love. A loving church is a generous church. Look in John 13, 34, 35. And you probably already know what that is. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Boy, Jesus made it pointed there, didn't he? Love one another. This is in the book of John. Read 1 John. You'll see the same thing. If you love God, you will love your brother. Here he says it again. He Remember what Jesus said as the Holy Spirit bore upon him to write that. Normally we would stop at chapter 8. But there's really no inspired numbers in our Bible. So we move on. In chapter 9, and we complete this, it's really five verses there. I had intended to go through verse 4, and then I I had added another verse. It's a bonus verse. (laughs) Yeah. As much as Paul had written about the Macedonians and giving by their ability, and then what? Beyond their ability... And then in begging. I mean, he's made that very clear through this chapter already, right? 
Now he uses the example and turns it right back to the Corinthians. He uses them as an example. It's an example of their original zeal that they had. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. You know, he says, I, what am I talking about? You know, this goes over and beyond this. About this ministry to the saints, you guys know full well what this is. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. Remember how he's been boasting to the Corinthians about the Macedonians? You know what he did to the Macedonians? He boasted about the Corinthians. <laughs> Very good. It's pretty, pretty smart, isn't it? And he really meant it. He really did. By the way, I think it's good for us to boast about each other. Rather than picking each other apart, isn't it great to see what, what God does in each individual? Oh, we can see the shortcomings. I think that very, very first um, thing that I had today about that Erwin uh, Lutzer, if you have that on your uh, bulletin, you can look at that and you can say, oh, yeah, because, uh, you know, it's about God's children. And, of course, uh, what is it? How does it read there? It's one one sentence. Huh? You got it up there? If you become a member of God's family, you have to put up with his kids. <laughs> Rather fitting here, right? Uh, but it's just more than putting up. But you get the idea. We're all in the same family. We have all sorts of different flaws and things that we haven't reached yet in our walk, but we sure have a lot of things that the Lord has given us and put in us. And that's what we're to recognize about people. And if we see some other things, you know, maybe, you know, pray that the Lord would put that on their heart, you know, whatever. Uh, but that we grow strongly in the Lord. Well, the Corinthians had, had a zeal, and, and he actually bragged about that uh, in Acts 20. And, and you don't necessarily see the bragging here, but you will see what's uh, going on at that time dealing uh, with uh, Corinth or in uh, that area, and also dealing with Macedonia. And in verse 2 through 4, or in verse, verse 1, he says he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, Corinth. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he had been in Corinth. He had been in Macedonia, then Corinth. He says, okay, I guess I'll go back to Macedonia. <laughs> so he returned there, and he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, Secundus of Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. So he's traveling companions. And he went back there. And so he had a good chance to um, brag about the Corinthians and what God had put on their hearts. Paul was concerned that if any of the Macedonians came with him to Corinth, they might find that they were unprepared. I was like, he's been bragging about the Corinthians. So he brings some Macedonians with him, and it's not done. Oh, it's embarrassing, embarrassing to Paul, isn't it? It's embarrassing to the Corinthians. They'd, they would have, they'd have to be ashamed that this happened. And so that's the idea. It's, you know, he says in verse 2, For I know your readiness. I boast about you. Namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year. Achaia is the whole district 
that Corinth was in. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. So that as I was saying you may be prepared. Otherwise if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. We. We'd be ashamed. And not to speak to you. Also. Be put to shame by this confidence that we have. Right? So he doesn't want to put them on the spot. That would happen. There's one last one. The last principle. And we're right at the end of the, this particular time point. Verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand you previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift. He says it twice. And not affected by covetousness. Ooh. Ooh. This is the sin that's the greatest hindrance to giving. Few sins are as ugly as covetousness. You want to know why? Because it's selfish. You ever seen any selfish people? Ooh. Oh, no. <laughs> Selfish. That's a problem. Pride. Arrogance. It's a horrible sin. By the way, in the New Testament, the whole aspect of covetousness, which is idolatry, is mentioned there. And if you practice that thing, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa. This is a serious thing. It's so graphic. That's our problem, though. Every one of us deal with selfishness on a daily basis. Forget yourself. Take up the cross. Follow me, Christ said. Forget yourself. But that's a hard battle. And it will continue till Christ comes back. But in the meantime, we are to beat this down. To beat it down. To kill it. Covetousness is built into the very fabric of a depraved human nature. Sinners covet because they have a heart that's trained in greed. Look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Oh, having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Accursed children. Now, this is false teachers. This is not a Christian. But do you see where we came from? We are still <laughs> sinners. Although we're, Christ doesn't call us sinners. But we, we still sin. We are believers. We are children of God. We still battle. Look where this came from. A heart trained in greed. That was our old heart. And yes, we have a new nature. But still yet we battle the flesh. Coveting is idolatry. It says in Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person, and then look at this, or covetous man who is an idolater. Wow. A covetous man is an idolater? Yeah, because he covets or he, his idol is whatever he 
keeps to himself. He doesn't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's not a principle of a Christian to covet. He doesn't practice that. Does he do it? Yeah. And this is what broke Paul. It was this command about coveting where he realized he was not a righteous man. The law broke him. It killed him, he said in Romans 7. Coveting. It's idolatry. Selfishness. You see how wicked that is? And so Paul finishes this 2 Corinthians text and the section that we're in with this, with this verse 5. Speaking about the bountiful gift they have, it's bountiful gift, and they're not to be affected by covetousness. Let me sum it up. We're done. We meet the needs of others believing that God and His grace will meet their needs. We realize that He uses us. And we say this model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We are totally dependent, rich or poor, we're dependent upon Him. We look to Him to supply our needs. He supplies us richly in grace, doesn't He? He supplies us all the time. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we will answer for the way that we have used the resources, the materials that He's given us. Christian churches, truly believing Christian churches should respond to the apostle here. Those responsibilities are legitimate responsibilities for us in the body of Christ. And we want to remember that constantly. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your truth here. We've covered a lot of material, but thank you for making it understandable as you wrote it through the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it comes down 2,000 years later and it makes an impact on your whole body of Christ. Help us, each one, to realize the sufficiency and how you meet our needs every day. In your Son's name, by His will, Amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Until next time.